Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's get to the nuance right now in the equity market. Tom yeah. with Mike Wilson. Morgan yes. Stanley's Chief U.S. Equity Strategist and C. I-O. Mike, great to catch up with you as always, sir. And let's start with margins. It's been a big thing for us this morning. A lot of people think that maybe this margin story, which has held up in corporate America, that story can persist into a new year. Do you think it can? Well, look, I mean, I think margins have surprised on the upside. That was really the call last year, which always happens, as you know, coming out of a recession, you get operating leverage. This time it was extraordinary because you had policy support that essentially subsidized the unemployment that was out there, right? People were at home, but they were still getting uh, checks from the government and they could spend it digitally. So that is unique. Um, And we see that being a problem going forward where people have made assumptions now that those extraordinary margins are gonna be carried forward. We see a couple areas in particular, consumer discretionary, industrials, parts of the technology market look to be a little bit lofty in terms of margin expectations. That's where we are in the cycle. Um, We see no reason why it's gonna be any different. And because it was so acute on the upside with operating leverage on the upside, it's not going to be a surprise to us if we see a little bit more margin degradation as we go into 2022. And that needs to get baked into people's expectations. Mike, your great strength is a sell-side analyst at Morgan Stanley. I know you and I are all Jack Welch 101 on pricing power. Sector to sector, analyst to analyst, what does your team say about the ability of corporations to adapt and generate pricing power? Yeah, it's, it's the key question. I mean, there's going to be companies that absolutely have pricing power. We've been, you know, looking for those types of companies in our recommendations going forward. You know, one thing we've noticed, Tom, as you know, I mean, the market's gotten very narrow. Um, obviously, uh, we've seen companies, the higher quality companies and larger cap companies who have scale. Um, the market is paying up for those now because those are the types of companies that typically have pricing power. Okay, so th- th- I mean, that's the name of the game. It's like costs are going up for everyone. So. Two areas I think you can look to to say maybe they'll be protected. Companies that don't have as big of a labor component, we do think labor is going to be an issue, not just for the economy, but the, for the Fed ultimately, that they're going to have to tap down there. And, and that's, the, that, that's going to be, you know, so technology companies is an example where they don't have as much labor, um, they, they can maybe manage through that. And of course, scale always gives you the ability to kind of spread costs uh, across a bigger uh, slate of revenue. So, Mike, does this mean tech continues to outperform and other types of sectors, the ones that lead the move lower where you see the S&P ending the year below where we are now? No, I think technology has gotten a double boost here, Lisa. I mean, it, 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 it's obvious candidate for, you know, pricing power or the ability to kind of manage costs. But it also is probably the single biggest beneficiary of this incredibly move, uh, move lower in rates at the back end, which doesn't really jive with what's going on in the, in the real economy. We know why that's happening. The Fed has been ultra slow, ultra dovish to to kind of get off the the maximum accommodation uh, mode. And and so that's been baked in now. So as rates move higher, which is our call for the rest of this year, you know, the the valuation on some of these long duration tech stocks will offset their ability to generate the earnings growth that's been spectacular. Mike, what does that mean for your index level call going into year end? Because you have looked for that index level correction as we work our way through this mid-cycle transition. Where are we now, Mike? So we're, you know, we're working through that mid-cycle transition. We're, we're seeing corrections kind of happen around the market, but not at the index level, which is typical too, John. 
you know, and then it usually ends with an index level correction when the market can't find anywhere else to go where there's value. So we, we think we're kind of in the, I don't know, sixth inning. Um, we probably have three or four months left to go for this mid-cycle transition. Usually it ends with the Fed finally moving forward with either a tightening like it did in 94 or in 04 or some form of tapering or balance sheet running off um, like it did in 2011. And we think it's no different this time. Um, I, I mean, by the way, that's not a crazy statement. I mean, is there anybody in the planet who doesn't think the Fed's going to be tapering next year? No. Well, um, <laughs> In fact, if they're not tapering, then we got a serious problem. Well, so the, the mid-cycle transition will end with multiple, you know, multiples coming down at the index level because the Fed is tightening policy. It's that simple. Mike, a lot of people expect the Fed to tighten policy. And as you said, if they don't, that may become more of a problem. You said that the 1.8% year-end target for the 10-year note actually could be conservative because the Fed is so behind the curve and may be forced to raise rates faster than expected. Play out what that would look like and when we would know that perhaps rates should rise more. And that would be later this year, right? It could be sooner than later this year. It could be next month. You know, I mean, let's see how the Fed wants to communicate this path. I mean, maybe it starts at Jackson Hole. Maybe it starts in September, which is our bet. that They start to communicate when they're going to do this. And, you know, but the other way to think about it, at least, is the bond market, you know, is not stagnant. The bond market will start to challenge the Fed in their timing of that communication if it believes they're falling too far behind the curve. Right. I mean, we're, we're basically close to full employment now based on, you know, the wage increases that we're seeing and the commentary we're hearing from companies. Like, we don't really know what Nehru is. Maybe it's 4%, maybe it's 45 maybe it's 5%. We don't really know. What we do know is that labor supply has probably been impaired during the pandemic. Maybe permanently, we'll find out. And, you know, typically the Fed is tightening policy long before we get to Nehru. They start the process. You know, once again, I don't think anybody would disagree with this statement, which is, does it seem right that we have emergency monetary accommodation at a time when the economy is growing six and a half percent real, eight and a half, nine percent nominally? That doesn't seem like it jibes. And I think the Delta variant is, is the market is saying, okay, well, let's see how the Delta variant plays out. But if we find that the Delta variant is fading, schools are reopening, we are going to get back to work. You know, the bond market can adjust quickly. Yeah. Very much like we saw in January and February, the last time that we were kind of out of consensus on the rate moves you know, probably surprising on the upside. Such a good final point, Mike. We've got to leave it there. It's good to catch up, sir. Michael Wilson, Morgan Stanley, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist and CIO. A decade ago, or even more, I should say, I learned about field economics from Pascaline Dupas. Her colleague is Esther Duflo, who won the Nobel Prize with Banerjee. Banerjee and Duflo have become definitive on poverty uh, economics. The new effort out is good economics for hard times out in paperback uh, today. And Esther, congratulations again, not only on the acclaim you've received, but the persistency that you've worked with in studying poverty. And part of that is in one of the chapters of your book, The End of Growth. Give us the optimism that growth is not ended. Oh, I don't know if I can give you the optimism. I think it depends if you have a glass half full or a glass half empty type of person, because the truth is we don't know. We have no idea. Ghost does whatever it wants to do. Economists have found it very difficult to predict uh, how to, to nurture it. We know very well how to kill it. Venezuela is a good case study on how to kill growth. But once the basic conditions are there, we don't really know how to nurture it. 
So that's the bad news. But the good news also means that uh, it also comes and goes and, and, and policymakers and economists can do a lot of things to make sure that once it's there, everyone in the economy, including the poor, take maximum uh, advantage of it. I look at the idea of growth and poverty, and of course the foundation of this is Robert Solo at your MIT and the study of growth over the years. And the elephant in the room is technology and its advantages. Can we process technology over to relieve poverty, or is the benefits of technology the benefits of the elite? Well, another thing Bob Solo uh, told us, he was really one of the giant field, is that technology is really the measure of our ignorance. What he called technology is basically what we're not very good at measuring. And for the same reasons, uh, we don't know um, whether it helps or hurts, and, uh, but it depends a little bit on what we are doing. Uh, for example, uh, if we have uh, new machines that replace workers, it happened during the Industrial Revolution, it's happening again today with automation, with AI. There is no uh, big law of economics that says that these uh, workers will necessarily find another job, and there is no big law of economics that says that they won't. The truth is that it depends on whether they are helped, whether they are accompanied, whether they are trained in the new technology to find new jobs. So there is a massive role for policy and for policymaking to accompany the process of the diffusion of technology throughout our economies and to make it a force for good as opposed as a force for destruction. And a perfect example, frankly, is a technology that we've seen deployed for the mRNA inoculations that have at least helped save off some of the progress of the COVID-19 uh, virus. One thing I find fascinating is that your book, which was first published in November 2019, focused intensely on the need to get vaccines across the world to prevent certain diseases. Why has there not been more money and more of a coordinated effort to create a network of vaccines nations globally well before this pandemic? Well, what is really sad in a way is that to some extent this network does exist. Uh, there is a very successful international initiative called Gavi that has been quite effective at promoting the spread of immunization around the world before the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, childhood immunization. And there has been a lot of progress in the decade starting 2020. Uh, to, till uh, 2019 in uh, childhood immunization. And we haven't found a more effective or cost-effective way to save lives than childhood immunization. So when the COVID-19 pandemic came, and thanks to technology and wonderful uh, research ingenuity and a lot of effort uh, and government funding, we had a vaccine so quickly. This network was pre-existing but somehow, to this date, we haven't been able to mobilize it to, uh, with the goal in mind to immunize uh, the entire world against COVID. And this is really sad because, in a sense, it was there. It really wasn't going to take much more than money and, and single-minded focus on the entire world and not just on the U.S. or on Europe. Mm -hmm. Professor Jiffla, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate this uh, morning and celebration of her new effort with uh, Professor Banerjee as well.
Right now, a joy. Marilyn Watson joins us with BlackRock, head of Global Fundamental Fixed Income Strategy, her public service to the United Kingdom, working at the Bank of England, uh, noted. Marilyn, I look at the bond market right now, and it's a jumble in fiscal stimulus in the United States. Is the fiscal stimulus in the United States a global phenomenon, or is it discrete to the United States? So I think that the fiscal stimulus that we saw before certainly was a global phenomenon, and it certainly did help to um, promote growth globally, even though we did see these um, issues, obviously, with uh, the pandemic and supply chain issues um, and, and global mobility really being restricted. I think going forward, when we do see the new uh, package coming through, it will be largely um, very pertinent to the U.S., particularly when you think it, when you look at the focus on infrastructure and on things that are very domestic to the U.S. That withstanding, I do think it was going to still have a significant impact globally as well. When you look at the demand that you might have for, um, you know, for commodities from abroad, when you look at the demand for various things that will feed into um, the different packages, I do think it will have some impact globally. But this time around, I think it will be more pertinent to the U.S. How big will the impact be on the bond market, Marilyn? Tens right now at 133. Yeah, so the market, I think, is already pricing it in to, you know, to do it to a large degree. I think at the moment, I mean, when you look at the bond market, it really is very difficult to really understand why yields are still down at this level. And I heard, you know, your previous speakers and you saying that, you know, we do think the tens will, you know, rise further um, throughout this year. I think at the moment, you know, the market is still digesting some negative news around covid um, and also, we're still continuing to see this huge amount of suppression coming from the central banks. As you do start to get more from the FOMC, as they do start to start to taper, start to withdraw this very, very, very accommodative monetary policy, I think that will help to shift yields higher. And then I also think that, you know, you are seeing in the equity markets, you're seeing in the bond market as well, already you're pricing in the stimulus that you're going to come through from the fiscal as well. Are we starting to discriminate within credit, Marilyn, given what's happened with the Delta variant in this country? I'm thinking of the likes of Carnival and others in mm. the credit market. Are we starting to discriminate a little bit more? I think that's right. So um, obviously at the beginning of the pandemic, you did see quite a large uh, amount of dispersion and discrimination between the different names. I think now, again, where you see that Spreads are still incredibly tight, really, across the board, across all sectors. When you look at the huge amount of crowding that we have in different asset classes and sectors of the bond market, because, again, the monetary policy stimulus is really pushing investors down the risk spectrum, now I think is the time where we really are starting to see a lot more from a bottom-up perspective. And I think it's important, as you start to look where to invest in the bond market at these incredibly tight spreads um, and you know, pretty rich valuations in general, then I think, you know, it's really, really, really important that you really understand from a bottom-up perspective exactly the dynamics behind that company, behind the sector, and you really have a very, very high conviction in the bonds that you're buying. And I think we are starting to see that, and I think we'll see that further going forward, and it's incredibly important now. Marilyn, a lot of people have said that the credit cycle is dead. What you are saying is that it is not, and that is why it is so important to do bottom-up research. What does this credit cycle yeah. look like, given where we are with Treasury yields and given where we are with the balance sheets of corporate America mm. that are pretty good? Yeah, they do look pretty good. And, you know, I think, I think there are uh, quite a few positives when you look at, the, as you say, the balance sheets of some of these corporates, when you think that even when the Fed does start to reduce, you know, its accommodative monetary policy, it's still going to be incredibly supportive for a very long time. And as the economy continues to do well, we're seeing this huge amount of demand 
And you spoke earlier about you know, the demand supply um, you know, imbalance that still will take some time to correct. I think we're going to continue to see a lot more demand going forward. And this is going to bode, I think, very well, particularly for those companies that have already been investing, um, that are going to be investing in, you know, the, in technology, uh, communications, they're going to be improving their supply chains. And I think that those companies will do well as we see growth continue to, you know, carry on at this very, very robust pace that we're seeing. All right, Marilyn, what's more important for an investor? Clipping coupons on a company that looks like it has a promising trajectory, even if that coupon is a lot lower, or searching for some sort of growth story at a time when the economy <clears throat> does seem to be expanding and when the consumer does have a lot of money to spend? Well, I actually think that you need a balance of both. It's very hard at the moment to, you really have to do a lot of awesome research to find those companies where you are going to see the significant growth and you can really capture the, the price appreciation, so to speak. Um, I also think it's important to find, you know, in the bond market, areas of carry where you can get that steady income that you need. And it also depends on the investor. So we've seen, you know, the huge continuing amount of demand, even for treasuries, from pension funds that have very, very good funding statuses, from um, investors from abroad. You're continuing to see investors, corporate investors, um, investing in um, you know, corporate bonds, even high yield, where they're looking for a little bit more carry to match their liabilities. So I think both are important, but I think really understanding the liquidity um, of those positions, understanding the risk reward dynamic, understanding the potential volatility are all very important. And I actually think a very well-constructed balanced portfolio is the most important thing now. Marilyn, thank you. It's good to catch up as always. Marilyn Watson, that BlackRock head of global fundamental fixed income strategy. The research report is so important for Doug Cass, Paul yep. Sweeney, that we got to get right to it. But Paul, have you noticed like Brett Gardner just endures? I, every just time I hear somebody going. say we need to trade him or cut him, I'm like, you crazy. If for no other reason, then he shows up every day. There's no <laughs> oblique. There's no oblique tears. There's no, I know everybody hits 200, but he's there every day. Doug Cass joins us to further the conversation now with Seabreeze Partners. Brett Gardner, would you trade him, Doug? <laughs> so much to say about the markets and the Red Sox, but so little time. <laughs> All I can say is the last time I appeared, Paul, with you and Tom, yeah. the odds makers I mentioned had the Yankees at a 4% odds of making the playoffs. Yeah. As I said on the show, I made that bet. Now the odds are close to 50%. All right. Tampa Bay, Hi. Toronto, and the Yankees have each won eight of the last 10 ball games. There you go. The Red Sox have lost eight yes. of the last 10. <laughs> and, Tom, and it's August for the Red Sox. You is, know the Red Sox. The, you know Latin. It's and the, I say, race ipsa loquitur. Yeah, it's the, it's the August of my, ch my many childhoods as well. Doug, let's move on to the markets in an important research note from you yesterday with a single sentence, sell stocks. Why? Right. Well, I would distill my, my current view by twisting around a quote from a student of Bob Farrell, uh, Walt Deemer. Now, Wally, like Bob, is a legendary technical analyst who worked at Putnam when I was there. And Wally used to say, when the time comes to buy, you won't want to. So I say now, twisting around his quote, when the, con when the time comes to sell or short, you won't to uh, you won't want to either. I think we're in a well-defined tug of war. On one hand, we have a quickening federal debt spiral that is now out of control. The rate of domestic economic growth is decelerating. We have a marked slowdown in China, which has been the engine of global growth over the last 20 years. 
the Federal Reserve is likely to soon pivot. Inflation and inflationary expectations are climbing. Cost pressures are intensifying. There's an acceleration in the spread of Delta variant, and the individual and corporate tax rates are moving higher. Moreover, and this is really important, I touched on it last time, a lot of demand has put pulled forward, as we learned in the quarterly releases at Apple, Amazon, Pinterest, Facebook, Netflix, and many others. And that pull forward is now ending as people begin to normalize their, life, their lives. I think to make matters worse, historic valuations based upon all traditional metrics are mostly at all-time highs. In fact, I have 15 metrics uh, on the S&P's valuation, and three-quarters of them are at the 100% historic percentile. Now, we have to be balanced, and on the other hand, the positives are also pretty clear. The offset to my concerns is obviously something you touched on in the last segment, the tailwind of liquidity. Uh, last time I was with you and Paul, I stated that if we graph the Fed's balance sheet with the S&P index, it's a perfect fit. It's a high R-squared or coefficient of yeah. determination. And for the CFAs out there, I know you referenced the uh, failing rate of CFAs over the last 12 months. R-squared is basically the proportion of the variation Oh, here we go. In, in a dependent variable. <laughs> this that is, is like a seminar. This is like a From sem an independent variable oh, to Bob Schiller, of course. So for some time, it's been clear to, to end this modern and undisciplined fiscal and monetary policy yeah. coupled with the market structure have been the primary determinants oh. of market support. And it can be argued today that investors are the least informed and least educated because they're all... Oh, listen to you now. Here we go. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I mean this, so, th that was like a dissertation from Kidder Peabody a few years no, ago. No, 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 no. Look, look, look. <laughs> I, I, I'm ripping up the street, the script to use your phrase. As I say, yep. uh, unlike a, a lot of very confident guests parading in the media, I don't have all the answers. I'm often wrong. I'm always in doubt. And I recognize that the market will do the best to twist around the consensus. I remember Grandma Koufax used to tell me, oh, "Here we go. Uh, always look over my shoulder because the Cossacks might be coming. So when I question my investment sanity, as I do today, I go to people like Lee Cooperman and Howard Marks, and I give them a call. And arguably the best go-to guy, the greatest investment hitter of all time, to use a baseball metaphor, are Ruth, Gehrig, and Williams combined, is Stan the Man. And I don't mean Stan Musial. Mm -hmm. I mean Stan Druckenmiller. And and just to conclude, if you if your if your listeners go to YouTube and search USC Marshall School of Business uh, speech that Stanley right, just right, gave, right. he outlines yeah. the unusual state. Uh, and highly recommend it. It runs only 25 minutes. It's okay. available for free. Let's let Paul and it discusses the yeah. uniqueness of yeah. this time in our economic. We got to get Paul in here. This is not a monologue, <laughs> Mr. Cass. Doug, I read your note, and you know a lot of the items that you just noted went through in terms of the challenges for this market. Some of them have been there for a while. Do you have a catalyst in mind that you think will kind of bring these to the fore for the marketplace? That's the best question ever because every night it keeps me awake. You know, what is going to make me – I relaunched Seabreeze Partners, my hedge fund, on July 1st. I was absent in the hedge fund business for eight years after uh, recovering from cancer. And I have been slightly net short since then for the last five weeks. And we're actually in the black, which is a good accomplishment. Um, to me, the single most important factor will be a sustained um, level of the 10-year yield in excess of 1.3%. And I think we're moving in that direction. So the the issue here is I think the market 
probably Doug is saying, okay, we understand tapering is coming. We understand that rates are likely going up. Uh, certainly, you know, let's call it 2023, perhaps. Um, but we have faith in this Fed, and that that seems to be what we hear. Is that faith not enough? It's not enough. Um, you know, Webster defines a Ponzi scheme as an investment swindle in which some early investors have paid off with money put up by latter ones in order to encourage more and more risks, bigger risks. And our economic policy, uh, Paul, is beginning to look that way. We have massive government spending. It's benefiting current citizens and being financed by taking enormous amounts of debt, which will um, burden our future citizens. Um, as a result, we live in a world where economic health is a bit of an artificially created illusion, yeah. and both the market, the stock market, and the bond market have soared as a result. The question is whether, as you put it, this is sustainable, and what are the consequences if it is not? So, in a sense, I think, Tom and Paul, and I'm not being hyperbolic, we could be witnessing the biggest Ponzi scheme yeah. in history. So the risk, especially mm. at current valuations, is extraordinary, and it seems to me yeah. That with a substantial recovery underway, the Fed should immediately begin to reduce yeah. its artificial support, which has yeah. so distorted the economy and our markets. Doug Cass, quickly here on Amazon, you've got a short-term view, you've got a bullish long-term view. Doug Cass on Amazon. I'm a buyer, thirty-two fifty after having sold it uh, uh, right before the um, disappointing uh, second quarter release. The stock immediately fell three hundred and thirty points dollars in the next day. Um, again, that was an example, as I referenced, of uh, pulling forward demand. I think the stock will um, trade in a pretty narrow range, and I would be a buyer at that level. We wanted to get a breath of fresh air always with AGF Investments, Greg Villier on our political system. Greg, I am so fed up with the cluelessness that all senators are the same I consider the senator from Vermont winning 67% of the vote in his last go-around. And I look at Tina Smith in Minneapolis, who we featured earlier in Minnesota, who I think was winning with 48% or something like that. I mean, there's a lot of people like the senator from Minnesota right now that have to step very carefully in these two uh, uh, proposals. Absolutely, Todd. This first one we'll get in a few hours. We all know that. Uh, but I, I am not euphoric that this somehow means we've got this done. The really heavy lifting now comes on the second bill, which would have $3.5 trillion in spending and new taxes. That's crazy. It's never going to happen. And people like Tina Smith know it. And at some point, they're going to have to give this bill a very big haircut. Is, is it a new deal? I mean, I get the politics and I get the symbolism, but Greg, <clears throat> you're expert on the breadth of history of our politics. Is it a Biden new deal? Yes, it is, to a large extent. It's the biggest New Deal type of spending since F FDR, if we got what they proposed yesterday. And I would argue that $3.5 trillion could quickly go down to two five, maybe to two, maybe even below that. I, wow. I think we'll get a bill, but there are some big, big obstacles. The debt ceiling, the fact that a smaller price tag would infuriate the progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has votes that she could put into this fight. So the fall is going to be a ferocious fight. And just because we get a deal today does not 
portend that we're going to get a deal in two months. Greg, how far can the $550 billion bipartisan infrastructure bill go without something more concrete on this other reconciliation package? That's a great question, Lisa. And, and I think that if if we don't get the second part saying we're going to deduce, use reconciliation, that's the big Schumer goal, uh, where you won't have to have a big a veto fight. Yeah, that'll get us into the fall. But once we do get into the fall, the price tags are going to be huge. And there looks like, at least for now, a very intractable battle over raising the debt ceiling that's going to complicate everything. Well, the reason why I ask is because a lot of people are treating the bipartisan plan as a sure thing. It basically has a lot of support on all sides, and yet it does seem to be linked in sort of an unknowable way to this other proposal that seems like pie in the sky, according to almost all accounts. So there is a question of what is the willingness of Democrats to torpedo the bipartisan effort in order to push forward something on the other side? Well, there is a willingness if you talk to people like Joe Manchin or Kristen Cinema of Arizona that they would never agree to tax increases of this magnitude. If I'm not mistaken, we have an election coming up next year, and the idea that we're going to raise taxes this dramatically, I think, would be suicidal on the part of the Democrats. Meanwhile, inflation very much in the forefront of people's minds. We got a survey yesterday out of the Federal Reserve showing that consumers' expectations for inflation over the next couple of years are rising to the highest level since at least 2013. How does that play in some of these spending debates? Well, it's a factor. And the Republicans are arguing, I think somewhat disingenuously, that this spending will cause inflation. A lot of commodities, as you guys know, have dropped in the last few weeks, oil, copper, lumber. You know, we do have a wage problem. I think that's more intractable, obviously. But the Republicans will will play this up. They've got some big issues, immigration, inflation, and in my opinion, especially crime. Who are you watching in the Republican Party? I mean, away from former President Trump, who does Greg Vellier watch in Washington? Well, for weeks and weeks and weeks, everyone said DeSantis, and his his halo has slipped in Florida, no question. So the new hot name right Please. now is, a, is an African-American Republican from South Carolina, Tim Scott, a very well-spoken, not, not way, way out on the right, a likable guy. He may run for president, and he's raising a lot of money. Greg? Right. Go and sell. No, I just, again. I, I'm sorry. My brain was just going there and raising money. We can talk to Villiers for hours. I'm Carry sorry, on. John. No, you can get a final one in. <clears throat> can I get one something? in? Absolutely. Go raising on. money's a huge deal. Explain to our audience, Greg Villiers, why raising money's the heart of the matter. Oh, you got to have ads on TV. And if you want to have ads on TV, you've got to raise a, a ton of money. We're already seeing saturation ads here in D.C. for the Virginia gubernatorial race. There you which go. Is still, it's still two and a half months away. John, is it like that in the United Kingdom? Does Boris Johnson have to raise a lot of money? No, things are a little bit more straightforward in the UK, Tom. God, was... We talk about this every cycle, don't we? I know, we? but I just wish we'd get there. I know which one you'd prefer. Yeah. We get it done in a ridiculous. shorter time frame. Yeah, Greg, thank you. We can go that now. Fabulous. Greg Vallier, HF Investments right. Chief U.S. Policy Strategist. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this 
is Bloomer.